Please open your Bibles once again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Today we're going to be reading verses 8 through 13, where Paul has now moved on from discussing the qualifications for elders and moves into discussing and explaining the qualifications for deacons. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, you can find that on page 992. So listen to God's word from 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. A year or two after we got married, Lindsay and I were living in Bryan College Station, and we started looking for a new church home, and we were primarily looking for Baptist churches, so we visited several um, Baptist churches in Bryan College Station, and it seemed like during every visit, we would have the same conversation. Inevitably, we would get introduced to one of the deacons of the church, and in the conversation, that deacon would always take great pains to emphasize that he was not like one of those deacons. Usually he said it with a bit of a laugh, but it seemed to be that all these different churches sort of agreed on one thing, and that was that deacons had a bad reputation. They were known for maybe trying to to thwart the will of the pastor or for just being disagreeable and contentious. They were known for being that group out of which trouble is going to arise in a Baptist church. And so these deacons wanted us to know they were a, a kinder, gentler kind of deacon. They weren't one of those troublemaking deacons. Now on the plus side, I'd rather re- meet a deacon who wants to be kind and gentle than one who wants to be mean. So that was good. But I always found these reassurances a little worrying, kind of having the opposite effect. They caused more questions in me. They seem to be, these deacons seem to mainly be defining themselves against something without a really clear understanding of what they were for. What were these deacons going to do in the church that was positive and helpful? So it always kind of worried me to have these deacons present themselves like that. We're just not like those old kind of deacons that you've heard about. Now, I'm not sure what your experience of deacons has been like. I'm sure in a room like this, we would have some stories of some experiences with bad deacons. And I know there are also some wonderful stories of godly, servant-hearted deacons. But I think it's safe to say that most Christians haven't spent a lot of time thinking about why the Lord ordained deacons. Why should churches have them? And then what deacons should be like and what they should do. And so that's what we're going to think about this morning And to structure our time, we're going to use three questions. Number one, why deacons? Number two, what are deacons? And three, who can be deacons? So these three questions will help us unpack what our Lord teaches us in the scriptures about deacons. 
Why deacons? What are deacons? And three, who can be deacons? So let's turn to this first question. Why deacons? Now, if we try to answer this question from God's word, what we'll immediately find is that God's word doesn't talk a lot about deacons. Now, if you, if you search for the, the Greek word behind deacons, which is diakonos, you might recognize the word diakonate that we use here still in English. That word occurs a lot of times in the New Testament, probably at least a hundred and it has a verbal form and a noun form, but most of the time it's just translated more generically like servant. So a diakonos is just a servant, or sometimes it's a minister. And we'll even see that in some of the texts we read this morning. But if we're looking at times where we can be fairly certain the New Testament is using this diakonos word to mean deacon, we can only be sure about two places and maybe a third. So we see the office of deacon spoken of clearly here in the passage we just read, 1 Timothy 3, where Paul first talks about elders and then moves on to talk about deacons, and he describes what they should be like. It's clearly being used in a more official capacity. And we see something similar in Philippians 1.1. This is one of those classic greetings of Paul. And in this passage, Paul not only greets the saints who are in Philippi, but he also includes the overseers and deacons in his greeting. So by combining those two things together, it's clear he's talking about more than just you know, the servants. He's saying the overseers and deacons. The other place where it's, it's likely we're talking about deacons, but where there's some disagreement among Bible scholars, is Romans chapter 16, verse 1. So if you have the ESV that I'm using, that verse is translated like this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Sincrae. Now that word servant... Is, is just that word diakonos. So is, is it just talking generally about a servant or is it talking about someone named Phoebe, a woman with this office of deacon? That might be the third place where we see the office of deacon spoken of in the New Testament. So that's all the data we have to go on if you're talking about where we can see the office explicitly spoken of in the New Testament. And I, I start there just because we need to understand that to, to understand what a deacon is and apply a practice of deacons to a church, it's going to take wisdom and care in how we do that. Right? The Lord hasn't provided us an extensive manual for the diaconate that we can kind of take and apply. We're going to have to use our own discernment and understand what these deacons are there for and, and how the church can implement them. This also helps to explain why we're going to start off this message this morning, not by turning to 1 Timothy 3, but to the passage that Megan read for us. Now, in this passage, it wasn't one of the ones I listed. Acts chapter 6 doesn't mention the office of deacon explicitly, but it's still a key text for understanding why Jesus ordained deacons and how they function in his church. So to answer that question, why deacons, let's turn there, Acts chapter 6. Verses 1 through 7. Let me read verse 1 again. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this passage begins with this really good news, that there were these early days of the church where the church in Jerusalem was prospering and growing. 
If you were to back up in Acts and read verse, uh, chapters 2 through 5, you'd see that story, starting with Peter's great sermon on Pentecost, where 3,000 are added to the church. And throughout these chapters, we see this church dynamically growing, with more and more people being added to the church. And yet, even though it was this wonderful time of dynamic growth, there were still problems the church faced. So there was opposition from the Jewish rulers there in Jerusalem, and that opposition was only increasing. There was also the issue we see in chapter 5, where where the church was sharing all things in common. They were marked by this great unity, but then Ananias and Sapphira come along and they pretend to offer all that they have when actually they had kept something back from themselves and they had lied to the apostles and the Holy Spirit and are struck down. So we have some problems going on. And then chapter 6 introduced us to another kind of problem. Here we find that there's this sort of cultural division developing in this young church. We have these two groups mentioned, the Hellenist widows or the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So these are all Jews, but the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. They're Jews who kind of came up in and raised by more Greco-Roman culture, as opposed to the, the Hebrew Jews who were more formed and in, in, in raised up in Jewish culture. So both of these groups existed in this early church in Acts, and there's a problem about how food apparently is being distributed, or how care is being distributed among these various widows. What I want you to see here is that this problem is fundamentally a problem that, that, that touches on the church's unity, right? There's, there's a sense of division here. You can almost hear an implicit accusation that among those who are in charge with caring for the widows, there's some preferential treatment. The culturally Jewish widows are getting something and the culturally Hellenistic or Greco-Roman widows, they're being left out. There may be a charge here of prejudice against these Greek-speaking widows, as if they were less important or significant because of their culture. One commentator noted that in the, in the context, if these people had converted away from Judaism, then they would have been used to perhaps having some kind of network of care through the synagogues and the temple. But they would have lost that by converting away. So now these widows are potentially very vulnerable If the church won't adequately care for them, they may be destitute and exposed to great risk. So it was really important that this issue be solved. This is is in some ways maybe a life or death issue for these widows who would have no other source of care than the church. So that's the problem. It's a problem that, that affects the unity of this young church. It's a highly charged situation. Now let's look at the apostles' response in verses 2 through 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word, to, preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I want you to note here that the apostles are taking two things seriously. First, they take their calling very seriously. They know that they must not forsake the ministry of the word. They must not forsake preaching the gospel. 
So they're serious about guarding that calling, about sort of keeping their main thing the main thing. You know, modern-day time managers would love these guys. They're, they're good, good at saying no. But they are also very serious about this problem that has been brought to their attention. Right? Notably, they call the whole church together. I don't know how many thousands of people this is, but it's a big gathering, right? And, and they, they call them together, and they provide a solution. They instruct the church to pick out men from among them, and they emphasize the, the spiritual qualifications of these men, that they should be full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, men of good repute. They want to make sure that, that the church picks out highly qualified men to solve this problem, high character people to solve this problem of this threat to unity. And I want you to note too that the conclusion of this story suggests that this problem was solved. So remember, verse 1 began by telling us that the church was growing in number, but there was a problem. Now look at how verse 7 concludes this little story. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So again, we're starting off this situation with, with the word of God increasing, but a problem, and now we end with just the word of God increasing, right? There's no mention of any kind of, of unity problem anymore. It seems that, by God's grace, these men appointed did their job. And whatever threats there were to the, to the spreading of the word and to the unity of the church, those were solved by the ministry of these seven men that were appointed by the church. There's no mention of anyone being neglected in verse 7, right? Now, as we've already mentioned, these men here were not called deacons. They're not ordained to the office of deacon in this passage. But we do see words for service appear throughout it. So in the, in the first part of the passage, when we hear that phrase, the daily distribution, distribution translates a word like diakonos. It's, it's a diakonos word group word. So we could say they were, they were neglected in the daily service that was given out to widows. And then the apostles say that they should not give up preaching to serve tables, same word, to deacon tables. But then in verse 4, they use diakonos in another way. They say they are going to devote themselves to the ministry of the word. That word ministry is there, diakonia, right? So the apostles' conviction is that they should not give up deaconing the word. That's their job, is to minister the word. But they, and so they should keep doing that. They should not deacon tables, okay? That's the apostles' conviction. I think I first heard Mark Dever put it that way. But they also are convicted that there should be men appointed to deacon in this way. There should be men appointed to, to meet these obligations, to serve the widows. And they should be appointed in a way that, that makes sure that no prejudice enters in. Scholars often note that when you look at the names of those selected by the church, that they are all Greek names, indicating that this, this Hebrew Hellenistic church might have intentionally chosen those who were being neglected, the Hellenists, to make sure that the, the Hellenistic widows did not get neglected. And the apostles are fully on board with that, right? They receive the ones appointed and they lay their, their hands on them. But the apostles are clear, this problem needs to be solved without taking anything away from the ministry of the word. 
want you to see that we have a sort of philosophy of deaconing emerging here in this passage. These proto-deacons were appointed to encourage the congregation's unity and to protect the congregation's unity and to facilitate the ministry of the word. So when we're answering the question, why did the Lord give the church deacons? That's the answer. Christ ordained deacons in order that elders can give their attention to the ministry of the word and so that the congregation can be united and remain united. A deacon's service has these two aims in mind. Facilitate gospel ministry, preserve the unity of the church. Jamie Dunlop, who serves as one of the pastors of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, has written an article called Deacons Are Shock Absorbers and Servants. So he uses this imagery of a shock absorber to describe a deacon's work. Right? Shock absorbers in your car, they, they smooth out a rough ride. But a car with broken shock absorbers and suspension is not only uncomfortable, it becomes very liable to break down in other ways. More fundamental pieces of the car will start rattling off, right, with a car with completely broken suspension. So good deacons serve the church by anticipating those bumps in the road, those those potholes that will disturb the peace of the church, that will threaten the unity of the church. They do this under the leadership of elders. They, They identify and address problems before they cause irreparable damage to the church. They serve the unity of the church. They absorb the shocks. We should also notice that the fact that the church will face these kinds of problems is no surprise to Jesus, right? He anticipates this. He knows these very practical things like the care of widows, if if done poorly, can threaten the unity of the church. And so deacons are ordained in his word because he knows churches will need this kind of help. He knows that elders because they love their sheep, are going to be tempted to try to solve every problem themselves. But their attention could very easily be distracted from the ministry of the word. And so he provides these servants, these deacons, to serve as shock absorbers. So that's our first answer, in our, first, our first question. Why deacons? The Lord ordained deacons to serve so that the word can be preached and so that unity can be preserved. The Lord ordains deacons so that elders can give themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer and to bring unity to the congregation. Now just put a note in here that this kind of service can include a bunch of different things, right? So you might have something in your mind, well, this is, this is traditionally deacon work, right? Maybe it's, uh, you know, managing the church's food pantry, something like that. Well, that, that can be something that provides uh, unity to the church and facilitates ministry of the word, right? But... But, you know, something like preparing the ordinances is a kind of diaconal service that Walter's been providing and before that Randy and Rosalie provided. It's a kind of way of, of facilitating our Lord's Shepherd service and providing unity, right? We make sure everyone has enough. We try not to run out so that half the church gets some and half doesn't. That would be really disunifying. So there, there are lots of ways that deacons might serve a church. Um, you know, in, in a, when I was in Capitol Hill, I remember they had a, a, a deacon they called the dad, he was the deacon of audio duplication, and his job was to make copies of the sermons back when we made tapes, you know, and CDs. Um, so deacons can do lots of different things that provide practical help to the church. 
They all fit under this this rubric of encouraging the word, facilitating the word being preached, and preserving the church's unity. That's why deacons exist. So with that said, let's turn to our next question. What are deacons? Now, we've kind of begun to answer this already by by looking at how the diakonos word means servant, right? So deacons are servants within the church, but there's much more we can say. Now, to answer this question, I want to come at it in kind of a, a strange way, a backward way of saying, let's look at three things deacons are not, and hopefully this will help us understand what deacons are. So first, deacons are not teachers, I should insert an adverb here. Deacons are not primarily teachers. Deacons are not teachers, though. By this, what I mean is that Paul does not require deacons to be able to teach. So if you compare the two lists of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 3 verse 2 explicitly says that an overseer or an elder must be able to teach. And that that qualification is missing from, from the qualifications for deacons. The deacon's office does not require him to be able to teach in the way that an elder's office does. Paul makes it clear that a deacon must know and believe the gospel. So that's clear in verse 9. He says, deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be convicted of it and be living out the gospel. So that's, that's a requirement. But they're not required to be authoritative teachers of that gospel to the whole church. The deacon's ministry is not primarily a teaching ministry. But they are encouraging the teaching ministry of the church. Their work serves to facilitate others' teaching. We see this again in what the men of Acts 6 do. They they are appointed to their service so the apostles can devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. And so when we're thinking about who should we call as deacons, We should call those people who are passionate to see the word of God preached. That's their desire. Even if they don't feel gifted or are not able to teach themselves, they really want to serve the preaching. They want to to make the pathway smooth for the preaching to happen. So you you can see how this could affect every area of the church. You know, a great deacon of the nursery, right, wants wants to provide places for children so that so parents may be able to hear the gospel undistracted. They want to smooth the way for the preaching of the word. Deacons should be those who work to safeguard the the time and energy of the pastors so that pastors can minister the word. Now, having said that, being a deacon does not preclude someone from teaching. So if you just keep reading in Acts, you'll see that two of the men mentioned in Acts chapter 6, who were these proto-deacons, go on to do some amazing teaching. So Stephen is martyred as he preaches in Acts chapter 7, and Philip is there witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8. So just because you may have the office of a deacon doesn't mean you kind of have to stop talking about Jesus, right? We, We may have deacons who are very gifted teachers, but the office of deacon doesn't require it. Number two, deacons are not rulers. That's the second thing I want us to see about deacons. They're not rulers. In various ways, when Paul's talking about elders, he does speak of them ruling. This is kind of implied in the word overseer. When Paul says that a man who's an elder must manage his his household well, in 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, the reason he gives for that is because such an 
a man is going to be expected to manage the household of God. So he says an, uh, an overseer must manage his household well for that reason. But it's interesting that when Paul says that deacons are to manage their own households well, he doesn't give that same rationale. So deacons isn't going to have the same kind of general oversight and management responsibility in the church. The same characteristic, being a good husband and father, that's required. But the role, managing the church, ruling over the church, is different. They have different roles. Another, let's look at a few other places where Paul speaks of elders ruling. So 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul says that, Let the elders who rule be considered worthy of a double honor. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13, 17 calls church members to obey their leaders. And it's very clear he's talking about elders, those who oversee their souls. Peter calls church members in chapter 1 Peter 5, 5 to be subject to their elders. So you see all kinds of ways that, that church members are called to obey elders and elders have some kind of authority. But we never see church members being called to obey their deacons in the same way. We don't see deacons being spoken of as rulers in the church. The rulership is not attached to the ministry of deacons. But they are servants. They're facilitators. Under the leadership of elders, they serve in ways that facilitate the church's ministry. Now, to, to say that, that deacons don't rule doesn't prohibit them from exercising some kinds of, of leadership and authority. So a deacon may find themselves putting together a rotation, right? A rotation for who's going to put out the signs one week or who's going to serve in the nursery. You know, there's a kind of authority bound up in that. Or a deacon might train somebody on you know, how to prepare the Lord's Supper elements, those kinds of things. But that's not the authority that Paul links with eldership. The authority that Paul links with eldership is the, the thus, thus saith the Lord authority that comes in the preaching of the word. And when we say that deacons don't rule, we're saying they don't exercise that kind of authority. We're saying they don't have the, the conscience-binding authority that elders exercise when they preach the scriptures. Jamie Dumlock puts it this way, elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the congregation does ministry. That gives you some sense of kind of the breakdown of authority in a church or how, it, how it's apportioned. So deacons are not rulers, but servants. Number three, summing these two things up, we can say deacons are not elders. This is important to see. Deacons are not elders. There is a distinction between these two offices. And what we find often is that churches get deacons wrong because they get elders wrong. And they conflate the two offices. I think in those churches I mentioned in the introduction, these churches we visited, this, I think this was really the problem. These churches had a poor understanding of the office of elder. They were often you know, led by a single staff member or maybe a collection of staff. They had no really idea of a plurality of elders where the elders worked together to shepherd God's people. And in many of those churches, pastors were sort of transitory. They were here for three or four years and then gone on to the next church and a new guy's in place. And so the only kind of permanent body of leaders in the church were the deacons. And the deacons began to operate in a way as functional elders with, with kind of elder-like authority and leadership over the church. They were no longer simply servants, but they came to be kind of a, a ruling body over the church. 
and often providing a, a kind of check on the pastor's authority, right? We don't want this new young pastor to get out of hand. We'll stand in the way and, and keep him down, right? We have just a fundamental breakdown here in the idea of what elders should be and what deacons should be. And so we must have a clear distinction of, of what we saw in the last couple of weeks about elders so that we can really see deacons functioning the way they're supposed to. Another way I've heard it put is that deacons are not supposed to function as a lower house of Congress in the church, right? In our American system, we have the Senate and the House, right? And the Senate has a little more status, let's say, but the House is still there, the kind of rabble-rousing House to keep it in check. That's not the way deacons are supposed to function. In many healthy churches, the deacons never meet together as a group, but they're each doing their own individual task or facilitating their own team. Alexander Strzok, who's written a lot about elders and deacons, has said that deacons serve as the assistants to the elders, carrying out tasks delegated by the elders. Again, this is what we saw in Acts chapter 6. But we also saw there that the deacon's role is crucial. So despite the fact that they're not elders and may not meet as a body, they still have this crucial role of bringing unity to the church. Another illustration that Mark Dever is fond of is to say that, you know, if, if, if we think of the church as a bus, it's the elder's job to say, we want to go to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is the direction the bus is going. And it's the deacon's job to make sure the bus is ready to get there, right? It's not the deacon's job to say, we changed the plan, we're going to Cincinnati instead, right? But he said it, it, it is something good for the dude of deacons to say, look, the bus's engine is broken and the tires are worn out. We can't make it to Pittsburgh, right? They do provide that functional feedback, but they're not the direction setters of the church. They're facilitating the leadership that the elders are exercising. But without the service of deacons, the church's ministry of the word would be hindered and the church's unity would be threatened. So to say that they are not elders is not to demean them in any way. Their work is essential. It's crucial that we understand this distinction if we're going to get the church right. Both elders and deacons have their role to play in the church, and we need to understand the difference. By looking at these things that deacons are not, I hope you're catching a vision for what deacons are. They don't teach, but they work to facilitate and ensure that the word is proclaimed to remove any hindrances from the words being proclaimed. Deacons don't rule, but they are servants who assist the elders in facilitating the ministry of the church. And that word facilitate is one that I hope you key in on. Deacons, we, we hope, will not only serve, but that they will enlist others in serving too. That's the kind of deacon we envision for our church. Those who both prepare the Lord's Supper, but assemble a team who help prepare the supper, or ushers, or other things like that, who are recruiting others the ideal deacon is kind of always working themselves out of a job, training their replacement, paving the way for the next deacon to serve in their place. So what are deacons? They aren't elders, but servants who facilitate the church's ministry. And this brings us to our last question, who can be deacons? Well, the first answer to that question is that deacons should be Christians marked by good character and faith in Christ. This is what those qualifications tell us in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And as we hopefully have already noticed, there's a lot of overlap between the qualifications for deacons and the qualifications for elders. 
Notice Paul begins his list for uh, deacons by saying, deacons likewise. So even as he's telling us about deacons, he wants us to keep in mind the godly character that he's described about elders. Deacons should be exemplary in their character. So if, if sermons could have hyperlinks, I'd want you to have a link here to click back on those first four sermons where we tried to describe the, the, elder, or the, the mature Christian's character. That they're exemplary, exemplary in their home life, in their godliness, in their self-control. All these things should mark deacons as well as elders. We want to call mature, godly people to these offices. Paul draws attention here to the need for a deacon to be self-controlled, particularly in the way they speak. He says that a deacon is not double-tongued. A double-tongued person is kind of the, the classic negative picture of the politician, right? Who says one thing when he's talking to the Wall Street bigwigs and another thing when he's talking to the factory workers, right? Or an even worse view of being double-tongued is someone who flatters you to your face and then gossips about you when you're, when you're gone. Imagine what a double-tongued deacon would be like in a church, right? They wouldn't be building unity. They'd be destroying unity. And some, some think that perhaps Paul's prohibition against the, the deacon being greedy for dishonest gain, maybe because deacons were often tasked with financial responsibilities. So you can't have a dishonest man or dishonest woman in that role working with money. So Paul believes that deacons should be people of high character. He's calling the church to call those with high character to serve as deacons. Another distinction about this list of qualifications for Dinkin is that it closes with a promise. So look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons who serve well will earn a good reputation and they will receive this blessing of confidence in Christ. It seems to correspond with when, when Paul opens his qualifications for elders and says that he who desires the office of overseer desires a noble task. There's something good and noble about this calling. Those who serve well learn more of Christ. They grow in their confidence in Christ. We can say this is true for all Christians, right? We learn Christ by following him as servants, imitating his service. I think this, this last promise for deacons does show us something else about them. The kind of people we want serving as deacons are those who prize the gospel, right? The rewards here are kind of gospel rewards. They prize faith in Christ above everything else. And so if you have an idea in your mind that deacons are kind of the, the church handymen or they're good with spreadsheets, they're good with management, but they're not really very spiritual, then, then you've gotten that idea from someplace other than the Bible. Paul's view of deacons is that, that these people know the mystery of the faith, that they prize growing in confidence in their faith. This gets kind of to the motive of deacons. Deacons pursue service because they love Christ. They love his church. And they want to know Christ better. So the first answer to who can serve as deacons is that those can serve who are marked by godliness and faith in Christ. Those who meet these qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. Notice that there's no special skills listed here. 
they don't have to be handy with tools. They don't have to be good at spreadsheets. They, those things can come in useful, but being good at those things doesn't qualify you as a deacon. Godly character is what qualifies you to serve as a deacon. So that's the first answer to who can serve. But I want to offer a second answer. The second thing I think we should say in answer to who can serve is that both men and women can serve as deacons. Now, this is something that churches who hold to our same theology disagree on. So you'll have faithful Bible-preaching churches who would say, no, the scriptures don't allow that, and others like ours who, who say, no, they do allow that. So I'm going to give you the argument from, from the scriptures for why the scriptures do allow women to serve as elders, I mean, as deacons, not as elders. But we'll talk, if you have more questions, clearly it's something we would love to talk to you more about, and I can give you some things to read as well. This is another way, though, that the office of deacon is unlike that of elders, right? We looked at this last week. Paul does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And so we, we looked at how those two terms, teaching and having authority, are ways of referring to the role and function of elders. But we see no similar prohibition of women. Paul never says explicitly, I do not permit a woman to serve in this or that way in the church. But the argument for why women can serve as deacons isn't an argument from silence. We see it actually right here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. So look at verse 11. The ESV says, Their wives likewise must be dignified. And it goes on to list a couple of other qualifications. Now we might wonder, if you're reading along, why does Paul stop in the middle of giving the qualifications for deacons and give a qualification for their wives? especially when there's no similar qualifications given for elders' wives, right? And the best explanation, I think, is that these aren't about deacons' wives at all, but these are female deacons. So why do I say that? Well, the first reason to say that is if, again, looking at the ESV, you look at verse 11, next to verse 11, you see the word there, T-H-E-I-R. That word does not appear in the Greek text. There's no there there in verse 11. So that word's not there. So all we have is the, the two words, women likewise. That's the second thing. The word translated wives is a Greek word that can be translated women or wives. So you'll notice um, it's already occurred in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where we've seen the husband of one wife and I don't know if you recall, but we said that's the literal translation of a phrase that means one woman man, okay? Likewise, if you go up a bit in your Bible to chapter 2, we see the same phrase, likewise women, in chapter 2, verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves. It's, it's almost the same grouping of words with an, with an and stuck in there. And this time it's translated likewise women, right? It's not, like, not translated likewise women wives, right? So the, the best, tr I think the best translation of this is not the ESV's translation. I would go with what the New American Standard Bible says when it says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. That's a better translation of what the Greek is saying. And I think we see why that's a better translation when we look at the pattern of the argument. So Paul begins chapter 3 by giving these qualifications for elders, what an elder must be. And he begins verse 8 by saying what deacons must be, 
deacons likewise, right? And then verse 11, it's women likewise. So I think what we have here is a structure like this. In verses 8 through 10, we have specific qualifications, or we have general qualifications given for all deacons. Then verse 10, uh, then verse 11, we have specific qualifications for female deacons. Then verse 12, specific qualifications for male deacons, that they must be the husband and one wife. And then 13 is a general promise for all deacons. So we get general, women, men, general is the structure of this passage. As Matt Smethurst puts it, we see these qualifications for the female deacons in verse 11 as being generally the same as those for deacons and elders already mentioned. So uh, Matt Smethurst says the women must be sober-minded just as elders are and dignified just as deacons are. Such qualifications and context point to official responsibility. So that, just a couple more things to say in favor of female deacons. I already mentioned what we, we, the, the example of Phoebe as being kind of a borderline case of is this servant in general or is it deacon? I want to submit to you that this, this is being used in an official way because Phoebe is not just described as a servant of the Lord or a servant of the gospel. She's described as a servant of the church of Sincrae. It's a very specific thing. Right? It makes sense that this would be a, a designation, an office she held in Sincrae with how that servant language is used elsewhere in Scripture. And then one final thing is that this argument for women deacons stands in stark contrast to the pa- practice we see in some churches of having women pastors. So I hope in some ways your alarm bells are going off, you know, is, is, is Kyle going liberal by saying this? And I want to say, no, it's fundamentally different. So people who, who practice women pastors must sort of abuse the text, right? They must explain away passages like 1 Timothy 2.12 when Paul says he doesn't permit a woman to have authority over a man or to teach over a man. They have to, they have to do harm to their doctrine of scripture to come to that point of view. And they all, we also see that it's a relatively novel thing, right? Women pastors are not in the tradition of the church. You don't see great examples of, of faithful churches with women pastors throughout church history. It seems to be a, a novel thing that came about in the mid to late 20th century for the most part. But the same is not true for those who believe in women deacons. Right? I hope you've seen that we're, we're getting this from the text. We're trying to follow the text where it leads us. And we do see faithful examples in church history of churches with women deacons. So the famous 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon says this about the office of deaconess. He says, it is an office that most certainly was recognized in the apostolic churches. And that's just one example. You could cite others throughout church history of people who are taking the Bible seriously and who hold to an authoritative, inspired scripture, believing and practicing women deacons. And so I hope you see it's a fundamentally different argument than those who twist the scripture to justify women serving as pastors. So the reason why we believe women and men can serve as deacons is because we're trying to stay in step with what the scriptures say. We're not trying to stay in step with our contemporary culture or any kind of feminist agenda. We believe in women deacons because the scriptures seem to teach them And we don't want to deprive the church of the godly servants that female deacons can be. 
And so, who can serve as deacons? Men and women who are godly and wise, who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. People who love Christ and love the church, who want to facilitate the church's unity and the ministry of the gospel. Now, as we've looked at deacons this morning, I hope you've been spurred to think about how you might serve Christ and his church. I hope that's true, whether you could even imagine being a deacon or not, right? All Christians are fundamentally servants, right? That's how Paul describes himself often. Christians are servants. And we should all look for ways where we can serve the gospel, where we can serve the unity of the church. We should all be on the lookout for those kinds of opportunities to serve. But I do hope that some of you have also begun to think, might God want to use me as a deacon in Christ our Savior Baptist Church? I hope that some of you, perhaps many of you, will eventually serve the church in the office of deacon. So this is very much a sermon for all of us. I also want to say that this is not an area where I, as a pastor, have led the church very well. I think I and so I can some way, in some way implicate the other elders. We've, we've not served you well in how we've led in deacons. We've neglected the office of deacon. Though I want to say this doesn't reflect in any way on Lucas's service as a deacon. Lucas very faithfully serves as he cares for Brenda, as he helps distribute the Lord's Supper, and as he helps with the church's finances. So this is no way to, to throw shade at Lucas or to undermine his service. What I mean is that we have, we've not really identified for you areas where we think we need deacons and we've not called men and women or, or asked them to serve in these ways. We've not done a good job of, of asking you where you think there are opportunities to, to serve or, or where you think there might be threats to unity that you might have an idea of how to address it. Now, by God's grace, I think the Lord has preserved us. So we, we haven't tasted the consequences of not having a, a full-fledged diaconate. But this is something that we do want to correct. And I, I would ask for you to pray. Pray for us as elders as we seek to correct it. Help us to, to be able to, to rightly identify areas of service. And I ask you to pray for yourselves again. Might some of you be willing to serve as deacons in particular ways? I hope that in the, in the coming weeks we'll be identifying some of these things and asking some of you to step up and serve in various areas of ministry. Once again, though, this is not to disparage the way you have served. So as I mentioned, the Lord's Supper a couple times, Walter and, and Randy before him have served us in, in kind of deacon-like ways. Many of you have served uh, Gemma and giving her rides recently. I know some of you served uh, the Petersons this morning, right? There's lots of service going on in our church that, that we're really encouraged about. And, uh, but there may be ways to just organize our service better and more faithfully care for each other. And that's what we see deacons being able to do. So I hope and pray that this sermon will bear some very practical fruit in how our church functions, that we will function more biblically and more healthily in the area of our practice of deacons. I hope you don't also miss the, the way this message about deacons and service is connected to this big theological theme we tried to present this morning. When we think about servants as Christians, this is not something that we demean at all. Because to speak of serving is to speak of Christ our Savior, the suffering servant. Once again, remember that Christ tells us in Mark chapter 10, he did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. To be great in the Lord's kingdom is to be a servant of all. And so by calling us all to, to serve us, to think about the diaconate, we are called to think about the glory of being a Christian, the glory of humbling ourselves for the good of the gospel and the good of Christ's church. To think about service is to fix our minds on the way that Jesus has served us. His dad so helpfully prayed and reminding us of John chapter 13 where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. You remember how Peter resists being washed? And, and Jesus tells him, if you're not washed, you have no share in me. If we are not served by Christ, we have no share in him. We are not saved by him. And so I hope this sermon on service calls you to meditate on the service of Jesus and ask, have I been served by him? Have I been saved by his work? Am I trusting in the work of Christ, the suffering servant who died on the cross for my sins? That's the key question that talking about service in the church raises. And it was for this gospel of Christ, the servant, that the first deacons served. It was ministry of this gospel that the apostles were so jealous to protect. And so... That's what faithful deacons are for. Faithful deacons serve for the sake of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, whether or not we think much more about deacons, we are well served to think more about the gospel. We are well served to think more about how we might serve for the sake of the gospel. Father, it's, it is our desire that, that the gospel should be proclaimed, that the gospel should be seen in the life of our church. We pray that you would protect us from, from disunity. And we thank you for the ways you have, that you have brought this church together out of two churches over five years ago now. And you have worked a unity among us. We thank you that you've did, done this, and this is something that only the gospel can do. And Father, we pray that would continue. We pray that as we love each other, we would demonstrate to the world that we belong to Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to work in ways that make the gospel even more clear and more loudly proclaimed. We pray for your help as a church as we try to be more faithful with deacons. Give us wisdom. Give us favor. We pray that you'd raise up men and women who are <clears throat> full of the Holy Spirit and of good repute and wisdom, who are able to serve us, that as we grow in deacons, again, the gospel's proclamation among us would be more powerful and more clear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.